Um, thank you for having me here. I had visited your church many years ago uh, when I was um, traveling in and out of uh, uh, the Far East nation to teach and train, and uh, it's good to be back here again. And I, I do recognize a few people, and I think those of you who have met me have realized that my sons I've seen sprout out like weeds, and um, my older son is almost as tall as me, so I've asked my wife to stop feeding him. <laughs> so, but uh, it's good to be here, and thank you for giving me this opportunity to um, bring God's Word to you. Um, this morning, I'm going to be preaching from the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John is a gospel that is known, as we all know, as we have read through it, that it shows us that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And it's always constantly, in, as we go through the gospel, it's constantly showing us that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. And this is important because um, it, in the Middle Eastern countries, in fact in Israel, when if somebody wanted to identify themselves with somebody, sometimes they would say that he is the son of somebody else. Sometimes the name itself has that, like if it's... Uh, if it's David ben, Je- ben, uh, ben Joseph, that means this person is the son of Joseph. And, and when a person introduced himself this way in the Hebrew culture, it was almost as, he, as if he is representing his father, if, that he was equal to his father. And it's like having the person's father in front of this person. And as we come to the Gospel of John, we see Jesus doing that. He claimed to be God by saying that he is the Son of God. In John five seventeen to 18, it says, But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. When, when Jesus said, said to the Jews, before Abraham was, I am, they picked up stones to throw at him. Why? Because that word, I am, is the word, the same name that God gave Moses in Exodus chapter 3. And they considered it blasphemy. And this is very important because as we come to the Gospel of John, even as we read it, we know one thing is that God and only God can save man that can save us from our sins. Moreover, as we come to the Bible, when we start in the book of Genesis, Genesis, it reveals to us that our God, the God of the Bible, is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He and only he is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He created everything. The universe, the billions of stars, the galaxies, the superclusters, and the very earth we live on, and all the different peoples that live on this earth. So it's not merely coincidental when we come to the Gospel of John, the first chapter, that it reveals to us that Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, is the Creator God. And we know that verse very well, John 1.1. 1, 1. In, the, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So when we come to the Gospel of John, it helps us understand more about Jesus Christ. And it introduces Jesus Christ as the Son of God to us, as the Creator, as the incarnate Word. 
And the Apostle John refers to Christ many times as the Word. First John 1 John 1.1 says, What was from the beginning, what we have seen, what we have, uh, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes and beheld with our hands, handled concerning the Word of life. And again, the Apostle John in Revelation 19.13 says this, And he is clothed with a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Apostle John refers to the Son of God as the eternal Word, as God incarnate, as Jesus Christ having come in the flesh. He tells us that he, Christ, is the powerful creative Word. He created all things. And he is the one who gives new life to the believers. And it is his word that has saved us. And the power of his word also supplies and sustains us. The creator of the universe is the word of God. And only the word of God could create and give life. And there's no other word and no other God and nothing else in this world that can give us life. John says in verse 4 of chapter 1, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. When, we, when I started, when we looked at John 15, 17, 18, the Jews missed the point. That's why they were seeking all the more to kill him. They were upset because he was calling God his own father and making himself equal to God. And what they had missed, they were only focused on killing him. What they missed was the relationship that is introduced here, that was told to them between Jesus Christ and God. Jesus Christ is his son and God is his father. John, John 5.20 makes this clear that how important this relationship is between the Father and the Son. In verse 20, it says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing, and greater works than these he will show him that you may marvel. Verse 21, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. They miss this important aspect of the relationship. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. The Father gives life, and because of that, the Son can give life too. It's ironic that in front of them was Jesus Christ, the life giver, and they wanted to take away his life. And the Apostle John knew this, that Christ came here to give life. And, and unlike the other gospel, he gives us the purpose of why he wrote the Gospel of John in John chapter 20, verse 31. He says in verse 31, But these things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing that you may have life in his name. John summed up for us the purpose of his Gospel. And the purpose is to tell us about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So, in a sense, it's, it has apologetical use that you may believe that Jesus, Christ, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So, Apostle Paul tries to persuade his readers of Jesus' true identity, that he is the incarnate God-man, 
He's divine and human nature, which were perfectly united in one person. And because Christ was fully God and fully man, he is the only one who can, who could, and he, who did procure and provide a redeemed life for us. And secondly, the Gospel of John is also evangelical. Because he says in verse 31, and that believing, you may, have, you may have life in his name. When we go through the Gospel of John, it, the word believe appears 98 times. And he always ensured and reassured us as we read through the Gospel of John that if we receive the divine gift of eternal life, and that is done through believing in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. John 1.12, But as many as received him, to them he gave them the right to become children of God, even to those who believed in his name. So when we come to the Gospel of John, it helps us to know who Christ is. It interweaves the truth about the deity of Christ and life, eternal life. And our lives are dependent on who Christ is and what our relationship with him is. And we know God is the one who gave us life. So he is also the one, who deter- he's the one that can determine how we gain new life and new life in Christ. And if he's the one who gives us life, God is also the one who can and must determine how we must live our lives. And that is in Christ Jesus. And you know, as we as believers, we know that the whole difference, the whole difference between Christianity and true Christianity and all other religions, all other cults, all other pseudo-Christianity groups is the truth about Jesus Christ. Even in the country where I serve, the government knows that. And so in their seminaries, in where they train the future leaders of their church in the government church there, there's two things that they cannot preach, and it's all about Christ. They cannot preach about the resurrection of Christ, and they cannot preach about the second coming of Christ. In other words, you, you if you're a pastor of a government church there, cannot tell people about who Christ is. John is a great book because in it, John helps us to understand who the Son of God is and what his relationship is to the Father and what his relationship to us is. And he uses many pictures to help us try to understand that. Because we're just man, but Jesus Christ is the perfect God-man. Fully human and fully God. He is deity and through him we can be saved and we need to understand that. So John sometimes uses metaphors, and he uses, records seven statements from Christ on how Christ tells us about himself, metaphorically. In John 6, 35, he says, I am the bread of life. He is the true bread, the bread of life. Jesus gives life, spiritual and eternal. Now, the next I am statement that Jesus gives us is, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. 
He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. That's John 8, 12. John 10, 7. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. And again in verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pastor. John 10, 11 says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. John eleven twenty five. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And John 14, 6, very familiar passage to us. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And this morning, we're going to look at the last I am statement that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John. And this one, the context of this statement is a little bit different because Jesus makes this statement personally to his disciples. And with this statement, he tells his disciples of the divine, beneficial, and life-giving relationships that he will be and have for his true disciples. And that's from John 15.1. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. And this final I am metaphor that Jesus uses to describe himself is the one he gives to his disciples before he goes to the cross. And the metaphor he uses is one of a grapevine. And Jesus is very specific in the usage of this last metaphor. He uses this to illustrate this illustration of the grapevine to describe the nature of his, the relationship between himself, his disciples, and the Father. And not only that, also the relationship of the disciples with one another and the relationship with the world. And he did this to help his disciples understand their relationship with him, their relationship with him as he is preparing to go to the cross to die on the cross for their sins and how that's going to impact their relationship with him, with each other, and with the world. And why did Jesus want to tell this before he went to the cross? Because Jesus knew that he would be leaving his disciples to be at the right hand of God, the Father. And so he announced his imminent departure to them at the end of John 13. So he had to tell them what he expected of them after he left, and also to prepare them for, for his departure as they would be facing the world without his physical presence. And the Gospel of John is the only one that uniquely records this discourse of Jesus to his disciples. So you can say these are the final instructions that Jesus leaves with his true disciples before he goes to the cross and leaves his disciples behind here on earth in their lives. And he tells us only to his true disciples. Because at this point, Judas had already left them and had gone about his business of finalizing his betrayal of Christ. And it's also significant to note that Jesus did not initiate the fellowship at the table the Lord's Supper, until after Judas had left. 
Judas did not participate in the fellowship of the Lord's table, in the breaking of bread, in the drinking of wine. Judas, the son of perdition, did not communion with the Lord that night. But his true disciples did. And these are also the instructions that he left for his true disciples. After the first communion, after the institution of the Lord's Supper, and before he left them to go to the cross. So what he says here is very important. Because where Jesus was going, they could not follow. And Jesus knew that after he had left them physically, after he had went to a cross and died and gone back to heaven, after he went to a cross and died, that initially his followers would be demoralized and in disarray. Matthew 26, 31, Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. So Christ knew that they needed this instruction for when they came back together again in this world to serve him. And this is a very crucial instruction because the disciples desperately, desperately need to know how they were to live after Christ had departed from them. Before the cross, they followed Christ around for three years. He was right there in front of them. After Christ died on the cross and was buried and resurrected, their relationship with him would be irrevocably changed. And what kind of change would their relationship to the Lord go through? How would his death affect the relationship with him and with others? So today, we're going to explore what the basis of Christ-filled relationships is. What is the foundation for each and every relationship that we will ever have in our lives? What is the secret to having Christ-filled relationships? Or in other words, we can say, how should a Christian live? Because our lives is composed of the people we know and how we relate to them. How should a Christian live in order to have Christ-filled relationships? One first must be filled with Christ or to remain in Christ. Because as we come to John chapter 15, the first thing that Jesus says there when we come here is, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. So the first thing we come to when we come to John chapter 15 is that it tells us what the quintessential relationship is. It's in Christ. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me, every branch in me. The basis of a Christ-filled relationship is being filled with Christ. Let's look to verse 1 to verse 6, and Jesus makes it very clear to us that we need to begin him. He says again, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branches cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. 
If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. This is our quintessential relationship in Christ, abiding in Christ, remaining in Christ, staying in Christ. He is the vine, we are the branches. We need to be in him, attached to him. Here in this metaphor, Jesus tells us that he is the true vine. And his father is the vine dresser or the vine farmer. And the branches that are in Christ are the professing believers. And Jesus tells us what comes out of this relationship, this quintessential relationship in Christ. The first thing he tells us is verse 1 and 2, that we will have a productive relationship through Christ. I'm the true vine, my father's the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. Here, Christ, using the metaphor of the vine, shows us the relationship between ourselves and him and ourselves with the father through the son. It is a productive relationship through the son. The only way a believer can have a productive relationship with the father is to be in Christ and to bear fruit for Christ so the Father continues to make us more productive. He prunes us so that we may grow even more fruit. And not only is our relation in Christ a productive relationship, but it's also a permanent relationship because of the Son. Verse 3 says, You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. What does Jesus mean by you are already clean? What he means by that is that you are saved. You are believers. You believe in me. And because they believe in him, they have a productive life in him, and they also have a permanent life in him. And how do we know that when Jesus says you are already clean, that he means that they already are in Christ? Because this is the same word that Jesus uses to describe that very fact in John thirteen fifteen, when Jesus was washing the feet of the disciples. And we just turned there quickly to chapter 13. When he was doing this, Peter at first objected. In verse 6, we see Peter say, Lord, do you wash my feet? In verse 7, Jesus has answered and said to him, what I do, what I do, you do not realize now, but you shall understand hereafter. And then verse 8, Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. So here, Jesus is already telling him that, about that, that this has to do with their relationship with him. And when he, he said that in verse 9, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not, on, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, He who has bathed only needs to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. Verse 11, For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, Not all of you are clean. So here what Jesus was doing, he was telling Peter that he is clean. In other words, he believes, he is saved, he is clean. You have been saved, you have been justified. 
And the washing of their feet is pointing to that continued relationship with Christ. And Jesus will continue to, the, why Jesus wanted to wash his feet to show that they also, not only does, do they need Christ to clean them, to save them eternally for life and justify them, and also they need Christ to sanctify them. And then when he says, not all of you are clean, he is pointing to the only unbeliever in that group, Judas. A non-believer. So, just uh, uh, our salvation is by grace alone, by faith through grace alone, and even our sanctification is the same is by faith through grace alone as well. Jesus saves us. Jesus sanctifies us. It is His grace to us. And. As he said to Peter, you are already clean. And again, he repeats here back in chapter 15, verse uh, verse 3, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. They believed his word, and they are already clean. Not only do we have a productive relationship in Christ, not only do we have a permanent relationship in Christ, but we also have a persevering relationship in Christ. Look at verse 4 to 6. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them in the fire, and they are burned. Here Jesus makes it very clear. Not only do they need to depend on him for life, but they need to depend on him for abundant life. We as believers can only bear fruit if we are in Christ. And if we are not, we cannot do anything. We cannot grow. We cannot be sanctified. We cannot do the good works which Christ Jesus created us for. So we need to abide in him and him in us, a persevering relationship in Christ. Jesus points out the importance of abiding in him. Abiding in him means to remain in him, to stay in place, to tarry. And and Jesus uses this vine illustration to help them understand a branch has to be in him to bear fruit because they have grapevines everywhere, all over the place in Israel. And the disciples will know very clearly only the branches that are in the vine that's rooted in the ground will bear grapes. Branches which branch off other branches are good for nothing. They bear nothing and they're only good for burning. So using this vine metaphor, Jesus explains to his disciples that the only way to be in a, in a relationship with God and to bear fruit is to be Staying in place in Christ. And the unmistakable understanding that the disciples would take away from this part of Jesus' instructions to them about the vine metaphor is that without him, without the vine, they are nothing. They are nothing. Same with us. Without Christ, we are nothing. We can do nothing. And because of that relationship, Because of the abiding relationship in Christ, because of this quintessential relationship, this helps us to know 
what kind of relationship we're going to have other people. And the first one that Jesus talks about is our relationship with God. What is a Christ-filled relationship with God? We glorify Him. Look to verse 7 onward. It says in 15.7-11, to 11, it says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandment and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. So how do we glorify God in our Christ-filled relationship, in our abiding with Christ? How do we do that? First, is constant obedience. A Christ-filled, God-glorifying life is marked by constant obedience. In verse 7, the first part says, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you. Here, Christ tells us that we glorify God by having his word abiding in us as we abide in him. Verse 10, look down at verse 10, it says, If you keep my commands, you will abide in my love. Proof of our love for Christ is what? Is our obedience to him, is that we keep his commandments. The fruit that we bear for Christ is the active practice of submission to him, to his word. Christ says that many times. He keeps reminding his disciples of that. John 14, 15 reads, If you love me, you will obey what I command. If we are being to Christ's commandment, if we constantly listen to his word, then we glorify God by fulfilling God's will. By fulfilling God's will. A Christ-filled love is marked by answer to prayer. Look at the second part of verse 7. Ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. We glorify God by remaining in Christ. And God is glorified when he answers the prayers of his children, of a believer who remains in Christ. And how does that work? I I, I mean, as we walk through life, as we go through life, We pray. And it does seem like sometimes that God doesn't answer our prayer. Why is that? It's because we don't understand God's word. We don't know it totally. We don't know it completely. Because here, it tells us that, how does that work? If anyone, um, it says, sorry, verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. The, what is necessary is that God's word abide in us. So that when we pray, if we pray in this Christ-filled relation, if we are abiding in Christ, when we pray, we should be praying according to his word. And God's word always comes to pass. And that's God's will. A lot of times when we pray, we're not praying God's will. We're praying our own will. That's why it's not answered. That's when God says no. And that's when God leads us by the Spirit to the right passage in Scripture to correct us. Even in our lives, we're always like that. Uh, There are young men that I counsel. They want to get married. 
and they pray and say, God, give me a beautiful girlfriend, right? That's all they want. But that's not God's will. Nowhere in the Bible does God say, pray for a beautiful wife. You pray for a beautiful wife in heart. What does Proverbs say? Rich inheritance are obtained from a father, but a prudent or a capable wife is from the Lord. You need to pray for the prudent and capable woman. Capable. One that knows the things of the Lord. Able to live it out and be that wife in your home. So you pray for a beautiful wife. That's not God's will. He might give you one. But don't be surprised if it isn't, if she isn't beautiful. But she has a beautiful heart. God is glorified when he answers our prayer. Why? Because we're praying according to his word as it abides in us. According to Christ's words. When we are living a Christ-filled life, life, when we are living in obedience to his word, and when we pray according to his word, God is glorified. Because what we pray for will come true. And another way we glorify God is by our attitude in life, by complete joy. A Christ-filled life is marked by constant joy. Verse 9 to 11. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. When we are living a Christ-filled life, when we keep his commandments, when we are praying the prayer that he wants us to pray, then we will have that same perfect joy that Jesus Christ the Son has when he keeps his Father's commandments. What a way to glorify God with joy. Our Christ-filled relationship completes, it perfects our relationship with the Father in joy. Abiding in Christ and Christ abiding in us is the only way to have that fulfilled relationship with the Father. Being in obedience, having answered prayer, and living in joy. We remember John 14, 6. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And if we are in Christ, we're going to the Father in joy. In obedience, in answer prayer, in joy. But not only does a Christ-filled relationship help us to know how we are to relate with God the Father by glorifying Him, but also tells us how we are to relate with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And we are to love them. Relationship with other believers is to love them. And that's from John 15, 12 to 15. We can love our brothers in Christ no matter how strange or how different they may be because of our relationship in Christ. In other words, our relationship with other believers is not based on what they're like, what they eat, or how they smell. But it's based on our relationship with Christ. 
And we can love them. How? Because, first of all, it is Christ's command. We are able to love our fellow believers because Christ commands us to. John 15, 12, and it reads, This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Christ commands us to love our brothers and sisters in him. Period. No ifs, ands, and buts. No strings attached. This is my commandment, that you love one another. But Jesus knows that we need more encouragement. He knows that we are weak. So not only does he give us his command, he also, we can also love our fellow believers because Christ is our example. He is our model. Verse 13 to 15. Greater love has no one than this, that one lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but... Sorry, I went too far. So here, Christ is example. Greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. Jesus was about to show the greatest model of love to his disciples by going to the cross. And this is very important because this sets the bar, the standard for our love for our brothers to the point that we'd be willing to lay down our lives for our friends. This is very important. A lot of times we don't live that out, do we? In the country where we minister, one of the hardest counseling problems we have is counseling husband and wives. You know, in this country, with a single child policy and with confusion thinking, that they, the, the parents have a strong relationship with the child than with each other. Many times when we counsel, we see that all they, everything's focused on the child and not on the relationship with each other. It's very sad. We were counseling a man a few weeks ago who does not love his wife. And we are called as husbands, Ephesians 5, that we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church, that he laid down his life for her. Christ is our example. Christ is the example for the husband to love their wives, that fellow believer, the closest fellow believer that they have as Christ loved the church and gave up his life for her. We would do well to follow Christ's example. And, not, we, and Christ not only gave his example, he knows that we are weak. We are men, mortals. So he also gives us his grace. By Christ's grace, we are able to love our fellow believers because of Christ's unmerited grace to us. Look at verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. We did not choose Christ, but Christ solemnly chose us. He graciously chose us not based on anything good in ourselves, not because we deserved it, but because 
He just chose us out of His grace. No reason at all. No good reason to choose us. He chose us to salvation, to sanctification, apart from anything that we did or accomplished. And one purpose of God's sovereign election is that we might bear fruit, that believers might bear fruit. And this is very important, that we love our fellow believers. We love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because that's only, also the results are incredible, is by this they shall know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And this is so important to the church, to fellow believers, to Christ's body, that Christ gives us a reminder. He started, verse 15, this is my commandment, my commandment that you love another, and he ends off the same way. Verse 17, this I command you, that you love one another. We must love our fellow believers because Christ admonishes, he reminds us to. This is so important. As Christ's body. This is so important for the well-being of the church, the well-being of your family. Now Christ tersely and succinctly repeats it for the second time. This I command you, that you love one another. Simple, short, succinct. We must not forget Christ's reminder. Love one another. Love that nasty sister. Love that irresponsible brother. Love one another. Not only the Christ in Christ do we know how we need to live with our brothers and sisters. Not only in Christ do we know how to live with God, but in Christ we know how to live with the world, our relationship with unbelievers. And what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to live with them? We are to witness. We are to witness Christ. And this is the last section here, verse 18 to 27. And this is not an easy thing to do. As we look at this passage. And how are we to do that? We need to witness the world because Christ is our example. Look at verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. We witness to unbelievers because Christ is our example. The world automatically hates us because of our Christ-filled relationship with God. The world hates believers because the first world first hated Christ, our master. 1 Peter 2.21 for you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Here in First Peter, this tells us that we are to witness for Christ not only in word, but also in deed. An example for you to follow in his footsteps. This means that there's behavior or action to our lives. So, we witness Christ to the world in both what we say and what we do and how we live. We witness because Christ is an example. Not only do we witness because Christ is our example, but we also witness because Christ owns us. 
we can witness to unbelievers because we belong to Christ. Look at verse 19 and 20. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Christ chose us. We do not belong to the world. We belong to Christ. We don't belong to the world, not because we never belong to the world, but we be- don't belong to the world because Christ has graciously and sovereignly chose us out of this world. He owns us. And also, not only does we, we can witness the world because he owns us, we, we can witness to the world because Christ is our master. Verse 21. We witness to unbelievers for the sake of Christ. Verse 21. It reads, But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. You see, we are persecuted for his name's sake. Meaning, we are persecuted for all Christ stands for, for all who he is as a person, as God, as fully God, fully man, and for the work on the cross that he did. Everything that he is. We do it for him. He is our master. We do it for his namesake. He is our Lord. This world, they rail against his righteousness. They rail, they reject his truth and they repudiate his works. But we are his followers and we do it for his namesake, for his righteousness, for his truth, and for his work. On the flip side, we want to, we desire to be witnesses to this world because the unbelievers are condemned. Verse 22 to 24. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. We witness to unbelievers because they are, they are condemned. Christ has come. He has died on the cross. He has witnessed to them. And he only caused them to believe him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The sin they're talking about, what Christ is talking about here, is the sin of unbelief. He has come here into the world. He has died on a cross. He has done everything God has, Father has him do. And they have rejected him. Sin of unbelief. And they, because of that, they are condemned. Not only do we want to witness Christ to unbelievers, we are already condemned but we need to witness them because they are destroying themselves. They are self-destructive. Verse 25. But they have done this in order that the word may be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. It is very sad. Unbelievers, they are dying. They're destroying themselves. They're rejecting Christ without any reason. Rationality. They are throwing away their lives. They are committing their own suicide without knowing. 
they are destroying themselves. They are self-destructive and need Christ. Only Christ can pull them out of their unbelief. Only Christ can pull them out of their self-destruction. Only Christ can pull them out of their sin as we also once were, enemies of Christ. Paul knew this very well. Acts 26, 14, he says, Paul, Paul says this about himself. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. A goad is a sharp point. He was hurting himself without knowing, kicking against the prick. 1 Timothy 1.15, he says, It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Paul knew that he was destroying himself when he was without Christ. But it is strange that we as believers, we as Christians, can want to witness to the world. Because this world hates us. The world hates our Lord Jesus Christ. The world hates the Father. The world hates what we stand for. You know, in this country, slowly, the persecution of believers is growing. The very things you value are being put on a chopping block every day in the news before your eyes. They hate what we love. We love life. We love doing what is right. We love the truth. They hate it. And therefore, they also hate us. They hate Jesus. Therefore, they hate us. With all this hate, hatred, all this enmity around us, how can we desire to bear witness to them? Because our relationship with the world is not determined by their unmitigated animosity towards us. But it is because that we are in Christ. We are abiding in Christ. And so this is why here Christ gives us that encouragement. We can witness because of Christ's, Christ's indwelling spirit. If not for Christ, why would we want to give the truth to people who hate us? Why would we want to see them saved? Why would we rather do that than see them burn in hell? Because of our relationship with Christ, Christ's indwelling spirit. Verses 26 to 27. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me. And you will bear witness also because you have been with me from the beginning. It is only possible for us to keep our witness before the world, to live these hard truths, to love our spouses as Christ loved the church, even though we're told to shun, to be our own man, to be macho. We as wives can submit to our husband, even though, even though the word tells us that we need our rights and we need to stand up for our strengths and, our, and, our, and the full potential of our lives. We can do that and be that witness because of Christ's indwelling spirit. 
despite the fact that the world hates us, despite that the fact hates that the world hates Lord Jesus Christ, despite the fact that the world hates the Father, despite the fact that they condemn themselves, that they destroy themselves, despite the fact that they willfully disbelieve and reject and rebel against Christ. Rationally speaking, why would we even want to bother with this group of people that hate us, that hate our Master, our Lord, that hate our Father, that hate everything that we stand for and we do and everything that we love? It's because we have the Spirit of Christ in us, dwelling in us. We bear witness of Christ by speaking and teaching the truth. We also bear witness of Christ of how we live our Christ-filled lives. Turn with me with, to Philippians one twenty-seven. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together, for the faith of the gospel. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. We can live that way because we have Christ in us. Christ's death on the cross, Christ's work on the cross, and his grace that we can abide in him allows us to do that. And lastly, this is not an outline. We, can, we witness to unbelievers. Why? For the glory of God. For the glory of God. It's always for the glory of God. First Peter 3, 17. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for what, doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. And same book, 1 Peter 2.12 reads, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, on account of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So, the question, how should a Christian live? Be filled with Christ. Abide in Christ. Abiding in Christ and Christ abiding us is the foundation to live in our lives. A Christ-filled life is a spirit-filled life. A Christ-filled life is the one which bears more and more fruit. A Christ-filled life is the foundation to Christ-filled relationships. A Christ-centered life is the key to every relationship we will ever have in our lives. With God, a Christ-filled life enables us us to glorify God unceasingly. With our brothers and sisters, a Christ-filled life exhorts us to love our brothers and sisters unconditionally. And lastly, a Christ-filled life encourages us to be witnesses for Christ in word and in deed to our enemies unrelentingly. Let us pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you.
for your love that sent your son, the grace of Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins so that we might have life and life more abundantly. Lord, help us to remain in you, to abide in you. May you dwell in us and our lives consistently manifest that we glorify you, that we love our brothers and sisters, and that we are witnesses in this dark world. In Christ's name we pray for his sake. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Raymond, for that wonderful message. Let's stand together and let's close our time by singing one last song of worship and praise. Behold our God.